Let's get started. Genesis chapter 22. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn over there. Um, that's where we're going to be spending the majority of our time um, this morning. And, and in many ways, our text this morning um, is an important uh, continuation of really what we talked about last Sunday. So if you weren't here, I'll kind of give you a quick flyby overview of what we were talking about. Uh, but we were, we were working through the story of Abraham and Isaac. And this understanding of how once you get to the point where Abram shows up in the book of Genesis, you start to see a shift in the narrative of the book of Genesis because it begins to show that, that God starts specifically working through Abram and how Abram now is going to be the bearer of the promise. And by the, but when I say the promise, I mean the promise of someone who one day will come and save everyone. And really, I've been trying to explain as we've been going through this series that the Old Testament moves in such a way and communicates to us in such a way that it, it shows us and is used to, to reveal both our sin to us, but also to talk about God is faithful throughout the Old Testament and ultimately promises that he's going to be faithful at a future date, and that will be through Jesus. And so last week we talked about the importance of Isaac and why it was such a big deal that Abraham have this child and that God had promised him. And, and we were looking specifically at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, if you could throw that up there for me real quick, right, that, that all of, right, what we're looking at in, in Abram's life kind of centers around the very beginning when, and when God first shows up at Abraham. Let me read this to you. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Right, and we talked about what a big deal that was. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then we talked about how this last part here really is the key section of this promise. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And, and the point we were trying to get to last week, and hopefully we saw that, is that when God is making this covenant with Abraham, it's not just a promise to create the nation of Israel, and that Israel's God's chosen people, although that's certainly part of the covenant. But when he is making this promise to Abraham, he's saying, look, every people group on the planet will be blessed because of your son Isaac. Because of who your son is and what's going to happen later on down through his family line, the entire world will be able to trace back their heritage, if they are a follower of me, to you and this child. And what a big deal that is and how important that is. And so when we get to chapter 22, chapter 22 becomes important because it's a, it's a, it's a big part of the story and in the, in the last really part about what Abraham's portion of this story is going to be. And there's going to be some difficult things for us to process through this morning as we're reading this story. Okay, I'm just going to throw that out there to start with. Um, the, the request that God is going to make of Abraham is going to be tough to swallow. And Abraham's response, I think, is also going to be tough for us to swallow. Um, but it fits into both the nature of who God is what the people in this particular region commonly experienced in worship of their gods, and there's an ultimate lesson that God is kind of trying to convey to Abram and subsequently the nation of Israel through Abraham's actions and response to God. And so hopefully we'll see two main things in the text this morning. So if you're a note taker, jot these down because this is what we're looking for, okay? 
The first one is that Abraham's faith in this story is, is going to be a foreshadow to the type of faith that is commended both to Israel and to all the human race that follows God or Yahweh as their God. Okay, Abraham's faith is meant to be Right? Something that we see and, and that we can look to, and then when we look at it, we would respond to it with the same level and attitude and attention that Abraham gives to God. Okay? So the first one is Abraham's faith is something we're going to talk about. But the second one, and this is more important, the sacrifice that is given in this section of Scripture is a foreshadow to a much bigger atoning sacrifice of substitution that God is going to give. That I've talked about this consistently, but we're going to see it really on display today. That this story is a foreshadow to Christ. Who he is, what he's done, and how God operates. So, alright, so I want to start first before we look at the first couple verses of Genesis 22 with, with the, some of the verses that we finished up on last week. Genesis chapter 15 verse 6, if you can throw that up for me. Abraham is childless. He's standing before God. He says, you know, God says, hey, I, I've got your back, Abraham. I've got you. We're good. And Abraham's like, well, I don't have a kid yet. And there's this guy in my household right now who's going to get everything. How, how is your promise to make a great nation of me going to come to fruition? And God's like, don't worry about it. I've got your back. And then this last part, it says, and Abram, right, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And, I, and we talked about how last week that this is important because this is how God has been operating from the outset, even back at the beginning of, of written history in the Bible. That response to God is not um, broken down into religious-based, works-based legalism, which is what kind of, be what the, really the Jewish people became by the time that Jesus showed up. They became a group of people that were really good at knowing the rules and wanting to follow the rules and the uh, outlines of things they were supposed to do, but they'd forgotten the heart behind their entire faith, which, was a, which is a, 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 an abiding, unwavering trust in God. And so here we see in verse 6 that Abraham, the father right, of the Jewish faith, is sitting there before God. It says that he believed and God counted it to him as righteousness, right? Meaning that God declared him not guilty and adopted him as his son, okay? And so when we get to Genesis chapter 22, I want you to keep verse 6 in your mind because if you, if you think about verse 6, right, Abraham has made a profession of faith. That's what he's done, right? Basically, so for those of you guys, you know, that you were three years old, you've always believed in Jesus, and you prayed the prayer on the, coming down the slide after you skinned your knee, right, and, or whatever, whatever, or you went to camp, you went to fuge camp, or whatever you did, right, God, you, you made a profession of faith at some point in time that you believed in Jesus. So, so relate that with what Abraham has done in verse 6. Chapter 22 is going to be a response to that profession of faith for Abraham. Let's look at the first four verses. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. My voice changed there, by the way. Apparently I became, like, that's what God's voice sounds like. Here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. All right, now, Kenneth Matthews, a, 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 he wrote the New American Commentary and edited, edited most of it, um, says that chapter 22 of Genesis is known in the Jewish tradition as the Akedah, okay? And it, it literally means the binding of Isaac. And the reason why that's important is it's taken from this word bound. And in verse 9, right, we're going to begin to see that play out. But he says this, that chapter 22 is the final test of the man's faith, meaning Abraham. The closing bookend to his discovery in God's sufficiency. Meaning that everything he is going to experience throughout chapter 22 is going to be a confirmation for him that his faith is placed in the right place. That even, even everything he's going to walk through, everything he's going to experience, everything he's going to do, no matter how difficult it is, that the real lesson behind chapter 22 is that he is going to see that his faith is placed in the right pl place. So, Abraham, walking with the Lord, he's got his son Isaac, right? And it says here at the start of chapter 20 that, that God is going to test him. And that word in the Hebrew kind of means to, to prove something. It's, it's the idea of, like, if you were to take a test in a class, you take that test to prove you actually have learned the information. Now, some of it, we can, we can debate on what it means to really learn that information. I know some of you guys cram really, really well, and you take the test, and you get a good grade on it, and then you never remember that thing again. I hope you're not studying to be a doctor. I'd prefer you to remember that information if you're working on me one day. Okay, but if you're doing something, I don't know, that doesn't involve opening people up or giving medical stuff, you know, whatever. You know, I, I don't know. Calculus can't do it, so I understand trying to cram it at the last second. All right, but the idea of what's going on here is in the Hebrew, what God is communicating is saying, hey, I'm, I'm trying to prove something to Abram. I'm trying to walk through it, and I, I think we should denote this, that there is a difference in the Hebrew words for test and tempt. Okay, because many people could read what Abram is going to walk through here and what God has asked of Abraham and say, he's really, he's kind of tempting Abraham to do something wrong in this situation. He's, he's you know, trying to ask Abraham, right, to, to take the life of his own, only son. And, and really in reality, when, when, when Genesis says that he is testing Abraham, he's saying he's doing this. He's asking Abraham this question, do you really trust me? You claim to trust me. Do you really trust me? And so we, we see that. He's going to test him. And then we get to the actual test, which admittedly, when we read it, anybody kind of weirded out by this test? Okay, a few of you. The rest of you don't care about child sacrifice. Okay. All right. He says, hey, I want you to take Isaac, your only son. I want you to go to Moriah, and I want you to offer him up as a burnt offering. Okay, so... I know this sounds bad. One, this doesn't really fit in with our 2016 version of Jesus that's sipping tea with you at the coffee shop, right, and hanging out with you. A few of you giggled at that. It's kind of funny. You can laugh at it, right? right? That's how many of us kind of treat things. He's super safe. He's super easy, right? He's always loving. He's always opening. Okay, first of all, I would say this, and, you, and you're not going to understand this because you didn't live in 2000 BC, but it was actually super common in Canaan for people to sacrifice children to their gods, 
Like, very, very common. If you read throughout the Old Testament, it's actually something that the people of God face fairly frequently. And it's something, actually, that God's announced multiple times. So, first of all, Abraham probably would not have been super shocked by being asked to do this, except for in light of what he's already walked through up until this point with God. Okay? If he'd, if he'd have gone to his cousin, you know, his nephew Lot, and been like, hey, God told me to sacrifice his kids. He'd be like, okay, yeah, yeah, I get that. Okay, so it wasn't something that they found to be super strange, which admittedly now we are like, that's, not, that's a bad idea. Right? Human life is valuable. We should not do that. And so we also need to remember, though, as we're walking through, right, what God is going to do throughout this story, we have the benefit and the hindsight of seeing the whole story. And knowing that God is trying to do something through this, and knowing that what he's asking of Abraham is simply a test, not something he ever actually planned to let Abraham go through with. Okay? And so Abraham is given this test, hey, I want you to take Isaac, your only son, and I want you to sacrifice him. Now, in light of what we saw last week, does anybody find that a little bizarre after everything that we looked at last week with Abraham? Yeah. Right? I mean, think about it, right? Abraham was 100 years old when he had Isaac. He didn't exactly um, live life perfectly throughout that entire scenario after that promise had been given to him. He didn't exactly um, get the fullness of God's promise. And then when Isaac actually comes, you see the rejoicing both in Abraham and his wife Sarah over... Right, the fact that they have this son now. And this is going to be the only son that they have together. And so, you know, what we looked at last week is the book of Genesis has made a huge deal about Abraham having this son, Isaac. And that God had both promised this son to Abraham. And that he had both also provided the son to Abraham, and that the son that had been in the promise was not Ishmael, but Isaac, this very specific child. And now, Abraham's looking at God, and God is saying to him, all right, I want you to sacrifice this child to me. This one that you went through all of this testing through, this one that you were patiently waiting on, all right, I want you to sacrifice that child to me. What is going on here for Abraham? What, what he's wrestling with at this moment, guys, is not something that any one of us doesn't face on a daily basis. Maybe it's not with a child, okay? But hear me out on this. What God is testing is whether Abraham loves his idols more than he loves God. What did Abraham and Sarah want more than anything in the world? A son. They desperately wanted this child. And so when God provides it, which is a good, it's a good thing to have children, and that this son in, in particular was promised to Abraham, that in that promise, we have a tendency to look at good things as human beings, things that God might even give us, and make them the main thing. Right? And so a tendency for Abraham and Sarah would be to trust God, God show up, give them this child, and then they begin to worship that child and love that child more than they love the Lord. They begin to not care about the sufficiency of God and the promise that he had given to do all these things, but they instead care about their own work and preservation of that child. Now, 
some of you guys in this room are parents and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have kids and your life drastically changes. And, and the rest of you guys have, were someone's child in this room and your parents experienced some of that. Right? You, there's nothing you wouldn't do to protect your children. You love them to death. You, you do so many different things to protect them, to keep them, to keep them healthy. I remember when Josiah was in the hospital multiple times just like weeping, begging that God would use what Josiah was going through, take it from him and give it to me instead. Because I didn't want to see my child suffering. There was, and, and I mean, no one in this room is going to ask to sign up for epilepsy, but yet when you become a parent, that's exactly what I was begging God for. I was like, God, please give me epilepsy and take this from my child. Like I was trying to bargain with him in some way. And there's this tendency right, to treat these good things, children, anything else, and make them the main thing. It's, the, it's the, the very tendency that Abraham struggled with, right? And every one of you guys in this room, whether you're willing to admit it this morning or not, struggles with idol worship. Now, we, if you grew up, especially a lot of you guys grew up in the South, and you grew up with a Bible, you think, oh, you know, I don't have a little golden image in my room anywhere that I pray to every day. And here's the reality, guys. Do you know what idols were in the Old Testament? They were physical manifestations of some created idea that people worshipped. So they might worship an idol that brought rain. Or they might worship an idol that would bring them excess of money. Or they might worship an idol that would bring them health. As I mention those things, right, some, you guys probably aren't praying for rain, you don't care, you live in Florida, it rains every day here. Right? But many of the other things that we mentioned, wealth, right, prosperity, health, Right? Are, are things that many of us run after and desire, sometimes if we're honest, more than we, more than we run after God. One of the big idols in this community was crushed yesterday afternoon in Tennessee. Right? Some of you guys are laughing because you don't care about the football team and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You, you're like, these, these people are crazy, right? And then some of you guys... How dare he call out my idol right now, <laughs> right? If your weekend was ruined by the Gators losing yesterday, you might want to check yourself. If your week gets ruined because a guy doesn't say hi to you on campus, or that girl doesn't say hi to you or return your text, you might want to check yourself. Right? If your life seems like it's in shambles because you got a B plus on your test instead of the A that you were looking for, Ooh, I got a few faces there. You might want to check yourself. Because here's the reality. God is in the position as king and will not share that position with anyone else. And so as he's testing Abraham, Abraham has made this profession. God, I trust you. I know you. I trust your promises. I know you to be good. I know you're going to come through. And Abraham's saying, and God's saying to Abraham, okay, show it to me. That this type of test would press Abraham with the question, what is more important, the life of my son or my trust in the promise that God made about this son? Right, that, that is, that is the, the linchpin of what is going on in this section. And so, Abraham's response actually surprises me. Okay, look at what he does. 
Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. The the actions of Abraham, to me, in these verses, actually in reality show a pretty big shift from the way he's acted a lot of the times that we've seen throughout the book of Genesis. Okay, God has just asked him to sacrifice Isaac, right? He goes to the place that God has told him to go. He tells his servants, you stay here, the boy and I are going to go worship, then we'll come back to you. He has Isaac carry the wood before the altar. As they get up there, Isaac says, hey, where's the lamb, dad? And Abraham goes, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, Abraham agrees to all of this, and it seems to, from the narrative, not really fit how he normally responds to stressor situations. Okay, here's what I mean by that. The previous two times that Abraham was in a situation that he was worried for his life or worried for those around him, what did he do? Yeah, he gave his wife away. He was worried two separate times around two separate kings about his own life and being kept safe and the thing that he held dear and valued the most, which is his own life. He was worried about it, and so he's like, here, you can have my wife. You know, she's my sister, right? You can, you can have her. It's not a big deal. And instead, he's going to surrender his son as he begins to walk up on that mountain. Why? What, what has shifted for Abraham by the time we get to Genesis chapter 22? From when we first saw him introduced to us in Genesis chapter 12. From those verses that I just read you, there's two keys from two separate verses in there that I think show a lot to us about Abraham's mindset as he's walking into this test. First look at verse 5. He says, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Does that sound like a statement by someone who thinks he's about to lose his son? No, he's like, hey, I'm going to go up on that mountain. I'm going to worship the Lord with my son, even though God has told me I'm taking my son Isaac up there to kill him. I'm I'm, I'm going up there with him, and then we're going to come back to you. And then when you get to verse 8, and he's questioned by Isaac about where the sacrifice is, look at what he says. God will provide for who? Himself, the Lamb for a burnt offering. He is walking into this test remembering the promise he was given back in Genesis 15. He says, I know what God's asked me to do, but I I think God's going to do something else. So I'm going to trust him on this one. 
I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know what it's going to look like. This is scaring the living daylights out of me because he's asking me to give up my only son. And yet I'm walking up on this mountain trusting that God is going to show up in some way and spare the life of my son. Abraham is choosing to do something here that he was not doing earlier on, and that is trust God for a way when he hasn't been told what that way is. See, Abraham at this point has done what some of you guys in here who have been Christians long enough and followers of Jesus have started to see play out. I used to love, my pastor and I used to go out inviting people to church uh, in student apartment complexes up in Virginia. And one of the questions, because the culture there was different, we had a lot of kids from the Northeast, and so many of them didn't grow up going to church like the culture is down here. A lot of them, you know, if I, if I ask students on campus, as some of you guys have gone out with me before, if you ask a student on campus, hey, do you have any type of like church background? Almost all of them answer yes. Like, it, it's more common to hear some, at some point, you know, a, a, a student at the University of Florida has, has been attending church regularly at some point in time. That is not the answer you got on, on the campus that I went to school at. Most of them were actually at that point two generations removed from somebody who went to church regularly. Being, I don't know, but you know, my grandma's Catholic or, you know, my, my grandparents went to church or whatever, but it's just not something that's been important for my family. And so... My pastor, as he would begin sharing the gospel with them, they would start asking questions. They're like, well, how do you know all this is true? And for most of us, we think when we hear that answer, when we hear that question, excuse me, we, we start thinking about how we need to prove the validity of the Bible or give a cosmological argument for the existence of God or be able to do all these different apologetic things. And you know what my pastor would do? He would ask someone that was with him to share their testimony and then he would say, I've been a Christian for 50 years. I've seen God's faithfulness both in my life and the life of other people. I'm not guessing whether God's real at this point. He says, I've seen God's faithfulness line up exactly with his words to us in the scriptures over the course of the last 50 years of my life, and I'm not guessing anymore whether he's real. I may doubt other things. I may doubt God coming through at one particular moment or not. Or I may doubt the trustworthiness of not sinning and the need to be obedient. But I'm not guessing whether God's real. That there is not a moment in the day where I'm like, is, God, is this even real? No. He says, no. I know that God is legit because I've seen his faithfulness as I've walked with him over the last 50 years. And as Abraham now at this point has been walking with God for years guess what he's seen? God's faithfulness. He's like, hey, I, I saw God pull me out of situations where I didn't even trust him, and I gave away my wife. I saw him come through in faithfulness when I slept with my wife's servant and had a child. I saw God come through faithfully and provide the son that he had promised us all the way back to my, to my wife, Sarah. I've seen his faithfulness over and over and over again. I'm going to trust his promises. I'm going to trust his goodness in this situation, and I'm going to see what happens. Because I know God is good. I know his character. I know who he is. I've walked with him. I'm going to stand up to this. I'm going to stand up, and I'm going to obey, and I'm going to do what he asks because I trust that God is good. His faith has now gone from just an idea in his mind and in his heart to being put into action, right? It's this idea theologically of our faith being brought to completion. 
Right, anybody ever read James chapter 2 and get kind of weirded out by some of the things James says in chapter 2? Right, look at, look, look at this with me. We're going to read it right now, so if you haven't read it before, we're going to weird you out for a second, then we're going to walk through it, okay? James chapter 2, right, look at verse 14. Right, if I had a dollar for every time someone asked me about these verses right here and how they fit into the grand narrative of the gospel, I would, I would you know, be able to send my kids to private school probably, okay? Here, here is what James says. And a lot of people have problems with this, including Martin Luther, Okay, look at what James says. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also... Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, a lot of us read that and we just, we, we start to panic a little bit. We're like, wait a minute, this doesn't fit into my picture of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith alone. And we start really panicking about what is going on. Okay, let me first, whenever you come to a passage of scripture that starts to freak you out, give you some advice. Don't just read the verse that freaks you out. Read the ones around it, okay? This, this is someone like all the time, like someone will come up to me and be like, hey, I read this and it says, you know, that I have to be baptized to be saved. And I'm like, okay, did you read the verses around it? Because he's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about baptism by the Sp Holy Spirit, which happens at the moment of salvation. And if you look at the language there, it actually reveals that to you. But if you only read that one verse and you develop an entire theological framework around it, you're going to be in trouble, and so if you only read, right, verse 17, you're like, oh my gosh, my entire faith is like just destroyed right now. And the Bible does not um, cohere with itself. It's not cohesive. It contradicts itself. This is a big problem. But if you keep reading, look at what James says. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith, right? He's actually being a little sarcastic here, right? Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by what? My works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not, look at this. We're bringing in our story this morning into here what James is talking about. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. All right, how many of you guys are still a little weirded out right now? Be honest. Okay, none of you. Every one of you fully understand this. I'm not, I'm not going to spend time on it. Just kidding. I'm going to tell you anyway because some of you guys don't want to raise your hand. Abraham's faith was proclaimed in chapter 15. And it says at that moment, God did what to him? Counted it to him as righteousness. Right? Saved at that moment. Right? Declared not guilty by God. And yet when we get to Genesis chapter 22... We're going to see a shift in this idea of the narrative. And here's what's going on. Abraham's faith 
in chapter 15 is simply declared. But when we get to chapter 22, he's showing it is legit, and then it's brought, therefore, to completion because it's been shown. Guys, let me share a danger I see in the church right now. And some of you guys I know have fallen victim to this, okay? There's a pervasive and dangerous teaching going on both in the church and outside the church right now that says this. For years, right, the church in the U.S. was marked by religious legalism. And so we were bound up with all these rules, told to follow God, told to do all these different things. And eventually, and thankfully, some leaders stepped up and some people in the church said, whoa, 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 this is not the gospel. What is going on here? Right? We're trying to earn God's favor. This is not right. This is not what we read in the scriptures. And so here's what they started saying. Hey, you are saved by grace through faith alone. Yes and amen. Absolutely true. But here's what's being attached to that, and it's, the, it's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Cost of Discipleship, calls cheap grace. It's the idea that you can make a profession of faith in Jesus as the Savior and forgiver of your sins one time, and then you can live and do whatever you want, because basically, right, how many of you guys have played Monopoly before? Jesus is your get-out-of-jail-free card. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, because Jesus hung on the cross for my sins. That is not grace. That people that have truly been changed and truly placed their faith in God actually end up changing and falling in line in obedience to Jesus, not because they have to, to earn God's favor, but because they want to, because God changes them. That their faith and trust in God changes them and motivates them to live a life for Him. That true faith always precedes action, but action must always follow a profession of faith. Otherwise, as James says, it's a dead faith. It's simply words, right? If I tell my wife I love her, and then do not do any of the things that a loving husband would do. Caring for her, providing, loving our children well, helping out around the house and with responsibilities that we have, staying faithful to her. If I choose to do none of those things, and not only I choose not to do those things, but I choose to not do them consistently, do I really love her or am I simply making the statement that I do so? Because my actions are showing something different, right? This is how Bonhoeffer puts this concept out. And bear with me because I'm going to be reading a lot here, but it's really good. He says this, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Everybody tracking what I'm saying there? He's basically saying, the church just tells you, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're loved, you're loved, you're loved, but never asks you to actually become a disciple of Jesus and follow him in obedience and truth. Which, by the way, is for your good. 
grace without price, grace without cost, the essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Yet he goes on to say this. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of it a man will gladly go and sell all that he has it is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods it is the kingly rule of christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. To put that in a simpler framework, he's saying to be a true disciple of Jesus is to lay down your own life and follow after him to lay down what you believe is true and to follow after God. To lay down what you want, desire above all else and trust God even in the difficult moments. By the way, if you are interested in that book because it's really good, I'm gonna be doing a study this semester. Come up and see me after the sermon. I'd love to get you in the group that's gonna be studying that. Just let me know. But costly grace, as Bonhoeffer describes it there, is what Abraham gets and is walking through here in chapter 22. He's taken his faith and counted the cost and has said, I trust you, God, I will follow you and your mercy as you have declared me righteous. And God says, give me your son. And he says, okay, I trust you. I'll follow you. Abraham surrenders all to God, but look at what he's going to get. Look at verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham goes up on the mountain, he builds this altar, he binds Isaac, which by the way, many suspect Isaac to be around the age of 13 at this point, meaning how old was Abraham? 113. So if Isaac had wanted to fight dad off, who do you think is probably going to win that fight? Right, probably Isaac. 
He willingly lays himself on the altar. He trusts his dad. Abraham is about to kill him, and then you see this, Abraham, Abraham, which anytime you see a name announced twice in the Bible, know that that's the way of screaming and getting someone's attention, right? That's the, the literary way of that happening throughout the scriptures. He calls out his name twice to show the urgency of the interruption, and it says, do not lay a hand on the boy. You have not withheld your son. I know that you fear me. That's what he's saying. That word fear means reverence. Is hey, I know that you trust me. I know that you get it. I know that you're going to trust me above all else. You've demonstrated your faith as legit. Abraham has now demonstrated what is already true of him, that he trusts God. He's just visibly shown what has already gone on internally, that he has trusted God in his goodness. Guys, our faith is most put on display in moments of extreme crisis and duress. Right? Saying you're a follower of Jesus is really, really easy when life is easy. Saying you have trusted in God for salvation and you're walking with Him and you're a disciple is really easy to say when all is going well, but it's really hard when ease and comfort is thrown out the window. This is why I hate the prosperity gospel with such a venomous passion. Because the prosperity gospel says to you and I, hey, here's God and mercy. Here's cheap grace. Jesus will do whatever you want. He's kind of like the genie in the bottle for you, right? All you have to do is see that he died on the cross for your sins and pray a little prayer and accept him. And then you can rub that, that, that genie lamp whenever you want. And he's just there to do whatever you want. He's kind of like Siri, you know, hey, hey, God, you know, I, 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 need a, I need a new Beamer. Or, hey, God, I didn't study it all this week, but I really need an A in this test. Or, hey, God, you know, hook me up with this. And there's no action required of you. God will just give you everything. You're not looking to follow him, obey him, and know him. You're looking to use him, abuse him, and treat him as your slave. That's what the prosperity gospel teaches. It doesn't teach God as king. It teaches you as king, God as servant. It flips the entire concept of the Bible on its head. And yet, there's another Bonhoeffer quote for you guys. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And for Abraham in this situation, worse than his own death, because he's old at this point, he knows death is coming, would be the death of his own son. And God bids him come and die. And true faith in God is manifested in Abraham's trust, his action, his trial, and his comfort and trust in God, both throughout it and afterwards. And here's the crazy thing about this entire story, is that as Abraham's faith is put on display, his faith is in action. It's a call, an example to Israel and to us, of what it means to truly follow God, even in the dark places, it's still not even the main point of the story. God get, says to Abraham, go give up your only son, right? And we think, this is it. This is the moment where someone other than God is not the centerpiece of the story, but Abraham's faith is going to be. And yet Abraham still takes a side role to God. 
Because look at what happens. Look at verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. He's getting ready to kill his son. God says, stop. He turns around and guess what's there? The sacrifice. When Abraham said, I believe that God is going to provide, guess what God did? He provided. When he told his son, don't worry about this, God's going to show up, guess what? God showed up. When he told his servants, I'm going up on that mountain and I'm going to return with my kids, guess what he does? He goes up on that mountain, he worships, and he returns with his son. Guys, this is not a coincidence that there's a ram stuck in the thicket on the top of this mountain. It was provided there by God so that this sacrifice could be made. Guys, this is the first example of substitutionary atonement in the scriptures. God has said, Isaac is the one that's going to die, and then puts something else in Isaac's place. Isaac is the one that deserved death. The ram is given by God in his place. And then God says this to Abraham. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself, notice how he doesn't mention Abraham at all. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. None of that still depends on Abraham. I promise. I have sworn. I will do this thing. You don't have to show me anything. There's nothing conditional about this. I've got this. I will multiply your offspring. And look at the things he promises. I will multiply you, your offspring will have the gate of his enemies, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through you. Now, if you guys know anything about Isaac, not all of that came to pass through Isaac. Because there's a deeper promise in that promise to Abraham. Isaac, Abraham's son, is a four shadow to Jesus. Think about it. Abraham's son, his only son, is to be offered up as a sacrifice. And as they're heading up on top of the mountain, who's carrying the wood? Isaac. And then Isaac willingly lays himself on the altar. And yet as we look at all that and we see all that, there's a better picture to come. Jesus. Let me read to you from where we're getting these stories in the first place. This is the last part of this story in the Jesus Storybook Bible. 
And as I sat there on the mountaintop, watching the embers of the fire die in the cool night air, the stars above them sparkling in the velvet sky, God helped Abraham and Isaac understand something. God wanted his people to live, not die. God wanted to rescue his people, not punish them, but they must trust him. One day, someone will be born into your family, God promised them, and he will bring happiness to the whole world. God was getting ready to give the whole world a wonderful present. It would be God's way to tell his people, I love you. Many years later, another son would climb another hill carrying wood on his back. Like Isaac, he would trust his father and do what his father asked. He wouldn't struggle or run away. Who was he? He was God's son, his only son, the son he loved, the Lamb of God. Because when I say that Abraham and Isaac in this story here is a foreshadow to the gospel, I mean that it is an exact foreshadow to the gospel. That as Abraham and Isaac climbed that mountain, it's a foreshadow to when Jesus carried his own cross to the top of the hill. The only difference being is that when Abraham and Isaac get to to the top of that mount and he's laid on that altar, God provides a way. But guess what was happening when Christ was going up to the top of that mountain? He was the way. That as Jesus is going up onto that mountain, carrying that cross, the substitution is not going to be provided by something else because Jesus is the substitution. He's the substitution for you and I. What's supposed to be happening there is that you and I are going to our death. That a relationship with God and knowing him is not supposed to be possible. And yet God is making a way. The punishment that you and I deserved that Isaac was going to take and a ram was provided, Jesus is that substitution for you and I. On that hill, the wrath of God was satisfied because God loves you and wants to declare it to you. That he would give you the life of his only son. The question is, is will you respond? Will you respond with a simple mental acceptance of the truth, of the veracity of what Jesus did? Or are you affected to your core like Abraham and the trustworthiness of what God has done for you? Guys, there's a shift happening in the culture of this country right now, and I'm here to tell you that being a Christian for sake of appearance is not really worth it anymore. That you will be given no position of prominence. You will not be elevated by claiming to be a follower of Jesus in this country much longer. That even in the South, that is on its way out. But I am here to tell you this, that the elevation of being known as God's son or daughter being forgiven of sin and learning the true joy of following him in obedience is worth more than that anyway. And I would ask that as we get ready to respond here in just a moment, we're gonna take communion. And we do it every week here. And what we're doing during that time is we are identifying ourselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus.
for the forgiveness of our sins. That you would openly confess sin to God before you take communion. That you would agree with him that he is right and you are wrong. That obedience to him is the only way. And then that you would joyfully take communion because God has already forgiven you in Christ. And that you would walk out true faith that both verbally accepts the promises of God, but also manifests itself in action and response to Him. And that you might know the joy that my pastor knows. That after years of walking with Jesus, you would say, I'm not questioning whether He's legit. I've seen it too many times. Even in seasons of doubt, I've seen Him come through time and time again. God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your son. Help me to obey you. Forgive me for my sin. May I walk with you and make much of you all the days of my life. Let's pray and worship him. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for the example of true faith that Abraham walks with. But thank you that even in the midst of that, you are the hero. All the glory goes to you. In the same way that you provided for Abraham and Isaac, you provide for us, and on an even grander scale. That through your son's death, burial, and resurrection, we are promised eternal life and adoption as sons and daughters. God, may the profoundness of that promise penetrate us to the core so that we might serve and know you. Thank you for everyone here, Jesus. Holy Spirit, move in this place so that we would know we are loved and known by you and light a fire that burns continually for your glory. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.